0: these informal and unregulated markets people have been bitten so many times by whether it's unfair charges or whether it's refunds that don't get paid out or just hidden fees and these sort of things so it it takes a while for the clients to come and understand our product but once they do uh, people really have a loyalty to us because of us favoring them in our decisioning and designing the process to favor the client and it works
2: I have previously talked about how the first wave of African fintech was largely about finding innovative ways to leverage feature phone networks to provide very basic banking services. These services were locally impactful, but they largely solved problems inherent to developing markets, problems of infrastructure. Now, this more recent wave of African fintech is in many ways more exciting. Because it leverages smartphones, it can provide richer services, and those services are more exportable to the rest of the world. However, there is a risk that we can create a digital divide of sorts, where all the innovation moves to channels that leave less sophisticated, less connected consumers behind, which is why I love the branch to digital strategy pursued by Unified Credit, whose CEO, Mahil Leroux, is with me today. Plus, they actually target profitability, which can feel almost subversive these days. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LePage Achille, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be chatting to you again after all these years. I think the first time we met, I was sitting with your brother in a land cruiser floorboard deep in the river, watching you as the younger brother get volunteered to swim under what we could only guess, I think, was the lowest strand of an electric fence so you could run back to camp and fetch the car with the working battery. Since those carefree days, we've all grown up a bit. You you went on to study, spent some years in private equity, and now are sitting as group CEO of unify credit. before we talk about unify credits and what you're doing to make smarter, easier and faster loans in sub-Saharan Africa, could you just spend a bit of time expanding on that background and in particular what you saw that inspired the unify business? Thank you So it was uh, did turn out to be the bottom
0: rung of the electric fence and so mm-hmm. I had a bit more time to work on my career after that. <laughs> the um, start of Unify was really opportunistic. I would love to say it was a vision, but it was more of yeah an opportunity that came along. I was working for a joint venture between a South African investment firm and a East Africa-based consumer goods and a soft commodities trader, trying to build up a consumer-facing private equity fund, which had started okay, but then turned out quite badly for several reasons. And it never really got going one or two investments became problematic and then the investment appetite and money just dried up and i was in a space in my career where i had tried very hard to be an entrepreneur i'd had a few false starts i was living in joburg loving joburg but also quite keen to explore and i was very much on the lookout when a email came across my desk from uh, an entrepreneur in zambia called Charles Bernard, an XL African. And he just told me that his business is up for sale. It was called Unity Finance, which is the root for the name Unify today. And there's a lot of things that just got me excited about the business. So I did eventually go to visit him, had a look around, and eventually I took the opportunity to my employer. They weren't interested. So I got some friends, fool's family money together and bought the company myself, moved up to Zambia and ran Unity Finance from late 2014. Why it was interesting to me uh, it's for several reasons, I guess. Uh, having been in the consumer goods, food, agro-processing industry prior to that, a lot of the assets that I had looked at were quite like old, highly sweated assets. So it'll be like a, a soybean plant or a maize mill or a Chip packing factory, assets that are decades old that are going through a generational change and the guys are trying to sell. Whereas Unity Finance was fresh, young, new. The staff, they really believed in the brand and in the business. And the clients really believed in the brand and the business. So it got me very excited. I like the traditional branch-based lending that Unity Finance had at the time, and we still have. And it was just a really cool and exciting management team, and crucially uh, profitable at the time, high margins. And you could see a lot of possible improvements in the business. It was being run well operationally, but from a knowledge economy side, not uh, particularly sophisticated. So I was excited. We did quite a long and, and stressful due diligence. And eventually in April 2015, made the transaction to invest in Unity Finance, which later became Unify. So just to answer your question, I had an interest in sub-Saharan Africa, an interest
2: on in entrepreneurship, but the business model itself was uh, more of an accident than a grand vision. I guess then the business roots could be said to be in Zambia, your roots obviously in South Africa, but you're also in Uganda and Tanzania, so already a continent-wide business but in markets that are obviously diverse and have their own challenges. And, you know, markets where traditionally people would be a bit wary of entering their relatively poor economies, relatively underdeveloped, quite often dispersed populations. And yet you could see that opportunity in there despite those challenges. But before we talk about how you've done that, if you think about those four countries and how you see them now that you've you know you've got experience in them
0: so south africa is definitely an outlier amongst that group it's um, a lot more sophisticated in terms of financial infrastructure there's much sharper competition and it's a lot more difficult to break into but it's a lot bigger as well so i'll set south africa aside for now focus on the other three and then also um, focus on kenya which we are due to open in 2022 There are many similarities. They're all English-speaking. Tanzania is a bit hybrid with Swahili, but they're all based on English law. The environments are data poor, and it's something that we battle with a lot. There's very little information on people's credit record, usually almost nothing. But there's also poor information on things like identity, verification biometrics, etc. Employment information, employer information. So your data richness and your data validity is a real problem and something which we've had to invest in quite heavily to solve. And the second similarity is that all of them are to a large extent shielded from international competition by very tough local operating environments. Not uh, many international lenders and not many fintechs have appetite to figure out and invest in local operations to the extent that it's necessary to make a success in these countries. I wouldn't say uncompetitive, but certainly less competitive than South Africa or maybe other markets that you often talk about. And that just means that when you get it right, the margins can be quite high margins. And then another similarity is that of the formal employment governments, by far the largest employer. So government's very really big
2: in our lives, not as a direct counterparty, but as an employer of our clients. Yes, yeah, so I remember when I was lending in Kenya, the teachers unions, the military unions, you know, those employer groups of the government, it's a stable employer, it's a they get paid on time. Big difference in risk between that and somebody far less formally employed. Now, if I look at your your tagline, you talk about taking smarter, easier and faster unsecured lending solutions to underserved markets across sub-Saharan Africa. You've obviously already mentioned some of the challenges in terms of sort of hard infrastructure and data. But if I look at that tagline, I assume that you're leaning pretty heavily on the smarter part that you're using tech and data. You've already spoken a little bit about investing in that. But I assume that that's where you lean so that you're able to do it fast and easy. How have you made it possible to enter these markets where, as you say, it's a little bit challenging? Yeah, I don't think there's any magic in it, to be very honest.
0: For our model, where it's a combination of branches and online channels, you need to have the patience of uh, rolling out a branch network and navigating the operational issues that come with high employment and with cash in transit. And landlords, vehicles, just the physical infrastructure on the ground. That's not really anything too smart, but it's not easy. (laughs) It's hard work just to keep things together and build good teams. Certainly, given that we've largely achieved that, the next step for us is really to make the lending smarter, as you say, and that is the current chapter that we're in. Again, I'm quite a traditionalist, so. Our data analytics are not based on um, machine learning or AI. We just make sure that our basics are done correctly. So in a data-poor environment, we make sure that our own data are very well verified, stored in structures that are easy to access, and very accessible to the users. So even though we don't get many external sources of data, we use our internal sources of data very well. Out of that, we've been able to build scorecards that I believe work better than most of our competitors. Usually only behavior scorecards. So in all the new countries where we operate, our first-time clients are treated very similarly. It's very difficult to get first-time information on clients to make a credit decision. But then we follow a sort of a low and grow strategy where we start with a short-term low-value loan. And then very early on, use the information we get back from the person's repayment behavior to increase limits and and push term. And I think our behavior scorecards, even though they are not based on any sort of new science or new magic, are quite revolutionary in the markets where we apply them. And we've got enough confidence to make pretty strong credit decisions on them. So the difference in limits between the opposite ends of our scorecard and the difference in pricing are, are vast which is a big part of our strategy.
2: Yeah, and it's it's an important part of it. And it's really actually great to hear because often maybe they've got a consultant in and they've built themselves a scorecard and that scorecard can you know, create 30 customer segments, but then they still give everybody the same limit and the same price. They just haven't thought through what to do with their data. And that's really the most important part. You know, you might get caught up in the like, slight difference in a genie or something and say, well, you're not using any of the predictiveness that you're chasing. And also, so you talked about right up front, the business was already profitable. And I think that can get lost in a lot of the fintech we talk about today that chases growth, chases technical innovation and hopes one day that they will uh, make some profit in the long run. You're showing that a thorough thinking through of the business is often better than just implementing the latest in technical tools
0: for sure so we've always traced profitability throughout and um, we've only missed one quarter in 2015 when things were really bad in in zambia but i believe in balancing the books and and, and using your your income statement as a guide to where you should go just to quickly maybe add on to the innovations though i spoke about data and it's it's big for us but the system and the technology side is equally as big if not bigger We've insourced our loans management system, which is a big challenge, but a very good decision for us. We centralized the cost between the different operating entities, which certainly takes away some of the pain and we've made a lot of effort to integrate directly into the large mobile network operators that uh, are across africa amt and AirTel and safaricom to be able to do real time integrated mobile money collections and payments that gives our clients massive convenience so even though we have a new client requirement to present yourself into a branch and to enroll your fingerprints and take your photo once new clients are enrolled, the majority of people actually transact subsequently through a USSD interaction that's fully integrated with mobile money. Cashless, paperless, contactless. So you, you could sort of see the theme here. It's a sort of a traditional start and then very quickly move people into a online and tech interface and a channel with um, kind of limits growing and, and prices coming down.
2: Yeah. So I guess you're saying we're not going to just build the modern environment and hope some people filter through. We're going to provide a routine so people can come in. We will validate them. It'll be secure. There'll be a branch if they need a branch. But once everything's digitized, we've got the data to offer a fully mobile solution, a fully online solution. And we can do that as well. And I think that's quite an important step in a developing market. Otherwise, people get stuck in a branch network because they need a branch. But the branch then is the only option. You're listening to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. If you're enjoying it, now is a great time to hit that little plus button to subscribe. Let's get back to the show. You also talked about the identity earlier and there as well. one of the big challenges that comes up often when you talk about lending in developed markets is this lack of approvable identity where addresses don't always exist in any meaningful way. Even government records can be questionable. It sounds like you've also invested quite a lot in getting those biometrics on board and being able to do a solid, genuine check of ID versus the old school name and surname and date of birth. Very important. When you think about the customers you're serving and what what they're getting from their relationship with Unify, what would it have looked like if we talk about, say, 10 years ago, with those sort of customers were looking for credit, what would their experience have been like? So I think there's quite a difference between government and private
0: sector clients. Private sector typically collateralized lending. So either with a bank or a non-bank lender, a loan that's backed by tangible security, maybe landed property, maybe a vehicle through logbook finance. Maybe if you're lucky, some sort of business stock or inventory or something along those lines. Government workers are slightly better served. 10, 15 years ago, saw the emergence of payroll deduction lending in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm sure that's a story that you're familiar with. The way I see it is that there is a shift away from payroll deduction lending. There's a customer fatigue as well as a kind of a political shift away from it. So I see these markets moving to unsecured lending over the next
2: generation. On payroll, I think the difference is perhaps also the valuing of privacy. So I used to work for a bank and we did payroll deduction lending for government employees. As I said, we would make a deal with something like the teachers union, where you've got all the government teachers in a country, and they would get a big discount on the interest rate. But anybody who went into arrears became a disciplinary issue at work. Of course, it's got an even worse history in some places. we are both sort of familiar with some of the bad history of South Africa and the mines where people would end up with negative salaries. But even when it was well controlled with affordability checks, there's still a bit of a uneasy relationship between your, you know, your HR uh, phoning you up and talking to you about your debt. So as soon as you've got another way to check that credit risk, another way to build those relationships, then I can see that people would start to say, yeah, I'm not so comfortable that my boss will also be looking over my shoulder at my finances. And
0: yeah. And you know, informal lenders typically don't have a great reputation, but some of them are really good. Some of them aren't. But money lending, obviously, is one of the oldest occupations in the world. So everywhere you go, there are informal channels through which people can borrow. So people do have options, definitely. But the second part of your question was about the experience. So I do think we've changed the experience. Uh, We've got a very big focus on instant so that the credit decision is made at the point of contact with the clients. So there isn't a centralized credit committee or a centralized decision-making body that needs to review loan applications. We do have some centralized checks that get done, but they get done while the person's in the branch. But that really transforms it for clients who enjoy the, you know, the, the fast experience. I think banks particularly have a really bad reputation. And even payroll lenders, a lot of the loans are actually originated not by the company themselves, but by loan agents, uh, sort of suitcase bankers. And those guys can often sit on a physical piece of paper that's been written on as an application. They can sit on it for a couple of days or even a week before it's eventually handed over to the lender for the application to start. So, you know, clients don't, don't like that at all. And then I think throughout the client journey, we've really invested a lot in making it slick and smooth and just ruling in the client's favor at every step. In these informal and unregulated markets, people have been bitten so many times by whether it's unfair charges or whether it's refunds that don't get paid out or just hidden fees and these sort of things. So it it, it takes a while for the clients to come and understand our product. But once they do, uh, people really have a loyalty to us because of us favoring them in our decisioning and
2: designing the process to favor the client. And it works. Yeah. And as you said, there is a sort of a, a tricky history in lending, or we've heard of really good stories like Grameen Bank in Bangladesh as well. But Predominantly, the headlines will be some of the more questionable practices. I was going to ask you about this, but you've already brought it up. Clearly, you've built your set of business around loyalty, around the customer. And it's good to hear that, you know, first and foremost, this is customer first, but also in a way that is just as a sustainable business. It needs customers coming back. You need to have that sense of communication and, and, and loyalty with them.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky situation that um, we have with our clients, right? Because most of our clients are extremely grateful for our business. Um, and then there is a proportion of our clients for whom it doesn't work out and, you know, maybe feel very overburdened by our product. You know, it's pretty simple. If, if that proportion is too large, then we, we go out of business because we don't make money if our collections are if our bad debts are too high.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: There's a couple of basics that you could do. There, There are unethical collection practices out there. I always feel that your collection intervention needs to be proportional to the person's debt and what they owe you. So it's pretty easy to avoid those things. By the way, our entire collections team are all female, so there's very little muscling going on. There's a lot of of verbal persuasion going on. But to keep the dignity in the collections interaction is also quite important to me. And we put these core values of ours in our call centers. And we actually do quality, audio quality checks in our call centers to make sure that people are persuasive, but they're not disrespectful towards clients. And and people get disciplined for crossing the line towards clients, even in the In the late stage collection space, which is where you could most easily lose your kind of respect for your clients, right? Because that relationship is already broken down. And then the loan value and the interest rate is difficult, right? I mean, we are very expensive. We are very small values. We put a lot of thinking into the amount that we lend clients. Overcommitting the client is a very big danger from a business perspective but also from the client's perspective so we put thinking into our scorecards we a b test these sort of things we survey clients we do focus groups to try and figure out what's the best amount to limit our clients to and it's interesting the results of it where particularly in zambia we've built the most impressive business the most settled business our best clients are at interest rates that are well below the regulated caps in south africa in Zambia, it's unregulated, not because anyone told us we had to, but because it makes business sense. I'm a believer in the market and that the best guy will win. But um, I know that the industry gets some bad headlines, no doubt.
2: Yeah, well, and I've always thought that the only time that that's the problem is when you're making the customer pay for your unwillingness or inability to properly measure risk, where you're just saying, OK, everybody's going to pay 70% the market will bear it. So I'm just going to do it. But clearly with a model that is built on like that low and grow approach, where you're using all your internal data with scorecards on behaviors. So it's a true reflection of their risk. And sometimes their risk is really, really high, and they're going to be charged a very high rate. But it's directly proportional to what they're doing, rather than, okay, this is just the average we charge everyone. And I think that's a lot more fair, even if that number is really high, it is self-correcting naturally. It is what Good data frees up that. But again, as we sort of said right at the start, if all you've done is built a business with clever scorecards and you haven't built a strategy around it to do A-B testing, to do risk-based pricing, to do risk-based limits, all the data in the world's not going to help you. The business hit rock bottom in October 2015, uh, shortly after I
0: invested or we invested in the business. And there was a big downturn in Zambia. And a lot of our clients lost their job. About 20% of our clients lost their job over the span of two weeks. And at the same time, there was a, a walkout of some of the legacy management members who started up against us. It was very traumatic, very difficult in in, in operating in a country that's not my native country. And at the time, our business model was very simple and our our competitive advantage was really uh, sitting in the strong operations at the branches, you know, good customer service and good anti-fraud and these sort of things. And these competitors that started up against us from the inside, they were able to replicate what we did pretty easily and able to take away a, a big chunk of our business. And that's sort of when I resolved to go down a journey of building a smarter business because it just became very clear to me that you can run a business tightly, but you can never scale it up if operations and customer service is your only competitive advantage. What we've built today, or let me say what we're in a process of building in this journey we're taking, becomes harder and harder to, to copy without... Firstly, a long legacy of customer information, but secondly, the ability to digest and sensibly process that information and and make strong business decisions on it. And I see that our pricing and credit limit decisions becoming more radical as time goes on, whereas most businesses go the other way around. You know, as the balance sheet grows, people become more careful with their decisions. Our journey has allowed us to become more and more radical with uh, what we do, and it's just transformational for the success of the business.
2: Yeah, and I think it speaks to that ability to to learn from the data that absolutely. And then speaking of growing, you're going live in Kenya this year. Do you want to talk about that and any other plans that you might have? I saw when I was googling it earlier that you've you've secured some financing at uh, Westbrook, uh, which is actually where my brother works. So shout out to them. But uh, uh, what are your plans? Kenya is very much part of the of the plan.
0: We want to replicate the existing business model with a little bit of local flavor in terms of the implementation and the customer-facing side of things. In Kenya, it's a very big market. It's a market with incredible depth. It's a vibrant market and competitive. There's international fintechs in there as well. There's very strong local banks. So it's going to challenge our model and our ability to execute. So, I mean, that is very much our plan for 2022. There's a lot of internal plans as well of improving the existing businesses in um, Uganda, South Africa, and Zambia. We are divesting from Tanzania because of a shareholder dispute there. But the kind of longer-term plan is to remain in lending. I see a dramatic shift in the whole sub-Sahara region from secured lending, whether that's payroll-secured or collateralized lending, into the unsecured space in the next few years as these countries industrialize and the financial infrastructure becomes more sophisticated and positioning unified to be in the forefront of that of that movement. And um, I just see incredible growth in our markets and in our product. And um, lending is a complicated business and it's a details business. So even just doing the same thing over again but doing it bigger, it takes careful planning and careful execution. So we're setting ourselves up to execute well.
2: And I know you said you were hiring if anybody wants to learn more to come work for you or to borrow from you or to uh, just learn more about what you're doing and maybe chat to you, where's the best way for them to go find more information?
0: Website, unify.credits, or if it's work, uh, you know, career related, it's credit forward slash careers. And for any prospective clients out there, it's uh, it's your nearest branch or the website. Don't know how many downloads you get from East Africa.
2: <laughs> yeah, we still, uh, we get a few, we get, uh, not, not it's not our, our heartland yet, but I did a little bit of work in Kenya 10 years ago now. I do try and uh, chase some people up. It is sort of one of the big testing grounds for fintech, isn't it, in Africa, that it's more of a developing market than South Africa, but it it did a bit of a leapfrog in terms of mobile banking. It built up a little hub there of fintech, of mobile banking, fintech in particular. And it's not as scary perhaps to enter as somewhere like Nigeria, where it's obviously a bigger market, but, uh, you yeah, know, at least from the outside perspective, a little bit more barriers to entry. So I, I do see a lot happening there. And, it, you know, it's great for market as a country I always enjoyed working in. And yeah, it would be interesting to to watch your progress there. Kenya's great. I love the
0: place. I've been up there quite a few times. Cool people, hustlers, really, really assertive, uh, busy thinkers, uh, the Kenyans, uh, if I can generalize. Maybe to add on then kind of to the plan for 2022 is we've been on this journey of, um, you know, this touch and tech strategy of ours with the touch being the branches and the tech being the USSD, mobile money, um, straight to bank websites, type of lending. There's been a transition. Obviously, in 2015, it was fully touch. Today, we're majority tech, but there's a transition on taking the physical client or the client that visits us physically and turning them into a digital client. And I think Kenya is only going to accelerate that further because Kenyans are extremely digitally savvy, very big on their phones and very big on, on mobile money. So we're working hard to further accelerate that transformation of our business into the digital space.
2: Cool. Well, Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and to share widely on LinkedIn. While you're there, feel free to drop me a connection request. How to Lend Money to Strangers is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, for just about the last time outside of Maidstone, England. If all goes to plan, we'll be in Brighton without a hiccup in the scheduling. If not, we'll just call it a mini spring break. Show music is by I Am Wake, and this week's episode is edited by Kane Hunter of hunterdigital.co.uk. You can find full written transcripts and more content at www.howtulendmoneytostrangers.show. I'll be back next Thursday. Hi, it's me again. My things are probably still in boxes, but the offer for a free signed copy of Draken or Butterfly Hill still stands. So if you would like one and you don't mind sharing your address, pop me a message on Brendan at howtolendmoneytostrangers.show and I'll put one in the post as soon as I can.
3: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.